Hi there. I'm Jen Hale Christie, and you're listening to Preach Her. This podcast is designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church or never even went, this podcast is for you. Welcome. Have you heard about our Patreon community? It is an awesome way to join me and others in this good work, whether you want to support women preachers and make sure that this work continues, or if you want to actually partner with me and have direct input, like you want to have a 30 minute phone call with me every month, or you want to join the sermon prep team, or you want to come and visit my family um, in Portland and help produce an episode. There are opportunities for you to engage at whatever level feels good for you. And everyone who's in the community gets access to our monthly letter um, delivered to your inbox at the end of every month. So click the link in the show notes and let me know what you think. Hello and welcome to season three, episode nine. I am your host, Jen Hale Christie, and today we're going to find out what happens next after Stephen's powerful speech. So if you heard Amy's sermon in the last episode, you will remember how Stephen retells Israel's history um, because he's trying to expose that they have this bad habit of rejecting prophets and leaders. And he speaks truth to power, pleading with them to break the cycle of their ancestors. His speech has some bite for those Jewish leaders. I mean, first of all, he is a non-expert preaching to the experts, the teachers and the rulers. You know, they're the ones who have been entrusted with the stories and with the law. They are the ones with the authority to teach and preach, not him. So they're bristling just a little bit. Second, he is emphasizing Israel's mistakes and unfaithfulness. He highlights how they refused to obey God's word that was spoken through Moses, how they turned their hearts back towards Egypt and and worshiped other gods. Um, Everybody knows these stories, but I mean, airing their like ancient dirty laundry is probably not the best first impression to make. The third thing he does is he quotes Isaiah, reminding them that, quote, the most high does not dwell in houses made with human hands, end quote. And this is offensive because in the Psalms, the language of something made, quote, with human hands is used to talk about idols. And that's the image that would immediately come to mind for every member of the Sanhedrin. He's accusing us of worshiping idols right here in the temple. Is he insinuating that God does not actually dwell here? Then finally, this one is the kicker. He outright condemns them saying, you stiff necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Murderers, betrayers. Those are strong, dangerous accusations. But this isn't the first time these Christian preachers have accused the Jewish authorities of murder. Earlier in the book of Acts, we're told that the authorities are annoyed with what Peter and John are teaching. This is strike one. When Peter and John are arrested and brought in, questioned by the authorities, they accuse the Jewish leaders of crucifying Jesus and rejecting the cornerstone. The Jewish leaders order them to stop preaching in Jesus' name, but then they let them go because they had performed this amazing sign of healing and all the people were praising God and they did not want a riot. Then we hear that they're jealous of the apostles. So this is strike two. As the apostles continue to do signs and wonders and the crowds of believers are multiplying, 
the Jewish authorities grow jealous and they arrest them. They say, hey, we told you to stop talking about Jesus. And what do the apostles say? The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now their jealousy turns to fury. The Jewish leaders are so furious that they want to kill the apostles. But Gamaliel, one of the teachers of the law, intervenes with reason and logic and he spares their lives. Thanks, G. But that fury is still simmering under the surface. And when Stephen speaks up and boldly calls them out, strike three, game over. You don't get to keep lobbing accusations against the authorities and just walk away, especially when they've given multiple warnings. Someone has to be made an example of. And we might wonder about Gamaliel because he's on the council and he should be here today. But maybe he's already used up his equity with the council and he couldn't risk coming to the defense of another Jesus follower. Well, if you know the story, you know what happens next. Things get pretty ugly. So this is right after Stephen's speech, um, and our text for today starts in chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said, for with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This story is full of like loads of echoes. There's fulfillment. There are reversals. There's, there's things in here that are firing off these memories of other stories and acts and from the Gospels and even teachings from the Pentateuch, from the first five books of the Bible. There are so many layers here that Luke like intricately weaves together. He is a masterful storyteller. And we're going to try to kind of pull them apart and see what message there might be for us. So for those of you who enjoy a good old three-point sermon, here are your three points. Echoes, fulfillment, and reversal of expectations. The echoes. So we hear an echo of the Sanhedrin's fury and desire for blood that was first sounded in chapter 5. And we might imagine that the chapter 5 instance was like a foreshadowing of things to come. Stephen is described with an echo from the Gospel of Luke. He's described in the same way as John the Baptist. He's described as being full of the Holy Spirit. 
And Stephen is described with multiple echoes from Jesus's life. Just like the heavens open when Jesus was baptized, so also Stephen sees the heavens open. And there he sees Jesus seated at the right hand of God, right where the gospel of Mark tells us he went when he ascended into heaven. And we see Stephen praying just like Jesus prayed, echoing Psalm 31, receive my spirit and asking God to forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. They don't know what they're doing. And we hear echoes of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, showing us, perhaps, why the Jewish authorities believed they were justified. Leviticus 24 commands the wandering Israelites to take a blasphemer outside the camp, lay hands on his head, and stone him. Everyone participates in this. And Deuteronomy says that when you stone someone, the witnesses are the first ones to throw stones. But what we see here is not quite what was commanded in the law. This is not an execution. It's a lynching. We read that the Jewish authorities covered their ears and they yell at the top of their voices. And this echoes back and confirms Stephen's assessment that their ears and their hearts are uncircumcised. If we pause for a moment and picture them covering their ears and yelling at the top of their lungs, we realize this is not typical behavior for adults. This is behavior that we expect from those who are still learning how to manage their emotions, usually young children. But these are grown men. We've seen grown men do it in our day too, just saying. So either Luke is providing us with like a humorous caricature of these religious leaders, or they are so blinded by jealousy and rage that they are reacting in like this primitive way, or like maybe it's both of those things. Either way, they're not listening. They're not thinking. They just react. They rush at him, they drag him out of the city and stone him. This is an angry mob. And yet, here's where God's word is fulfilled. All of our characters are participating in the fulfillment of God's word. We might pause here to notice that there's this interesting contrast of who is fulfilling what. I'm telling you, Luke is super crafty, you guys. He's demonstrating how, just like Jesus, these early followers are fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament. Prophecies concerning God's grace and mercy and redemption, they're fulfilling prophecies spoken by Jesus. And in contrast, he's showing how the Jewish authorities are fulfilling the law, like capital L, law, particularly regarding judgment and punishment. And they're fulfilling the law as they interpret it. So we've got some characters fulfilling prophecies and others fulfilling the law, and this creates conflict. So we know how the Jewish authorities are fulfilling the law by stoning Stephen for blasphemy, and we see how these early followers fulfilling the prophecy about God's spirit being poured out on all that everybody would prophesy. But how will the early followers fulfill Jesus' words about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? Aha, enter Saul. For those of us who know the rest of the story, there's this like collective and audible gasp when Luke tells us that the witnesses are laying their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul? Are you kidding me right now? Isn't he the guy whose name gets changed to Paul? What is he doing here? This young man, Saul, he approves of the lynching. What's more, while Stephen's friends and co-ministers are grieving and they're burying him, Saul is out pounding the pavement, persecuting Christians and dragging them to prison. No longer is he just standing by holding the coats. He's actually out there aggressively pursuing the believers. He is intent on exterminating them. And he has to chase them down because they're scattered. The lynching of Stephen sets off this huge persecution for the church and everyone except the apostles scatters. 
And where do they scatter? They go to Judea and Samaria, of course. Luke tells us that wherever they scatter, they preach the word. Because back in the beginning of Acts, remember, Jesus prophesied that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And now, their persecution is serving a purpose. It's fulfilling the prophecy that they will witness to the ends of the earth. Ironically, persecuting these Christians doesn't result in their extermination. It emboldens them. It strengthens their message and it multiplies the number of believers as they spread out and reach more people. Okay, point three, reversals. Luke tells us that Philip, one of those seven who was appointed to take care of the widows, he goes down to Samaria and generates a lot of buzz down there. And of course, we remember that even though the name Samaria or Samaritan might not hold a lot of meaning for us today, it is a word that you utter with a look of disgust if you're a Jew in the first century. You might even have to spit on the ground after you say that word. Because those Samaritans claimed to be the true Israel, descendants of the lost tribes who were taken into Assyrian captivity back in the 8th century BCE. Of course, the Jews deny this, but the leaders of both groups teach that it is wrong to have contact with one another. Remember that when they were traveling between Judea, which is to the south, and Galilee, which is to the north, Jews would go miles and miles out of their way just to go around rather than through Samaria to avoid having to come into contact with or eat with or stay with Samaritans. There is no small amount of tension between Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus blows right through that dividing wall, and so do his followers. For the first time, the Jesus followers take the message outside the walls of Jerusalem. They go outside the city gates, right to the outcast, to the people you're not supposed to have any contact with, and they touch them. They talk with them, they heal them, they eat with them, they live among them. But this, my friends, is not what we expect. You remember how the book of Acts starts out, like the early church seemed so idyllic. They're sharing meals every day, sharing all their possessions so that no one is in need. They're united in everything. They're praying all the time. Sounds like how, you know, we're told heaven's supposed to be. Until some of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians come over and say, Ah, uh, you guys, you're forgetting about our widows. There are actually some people in need and they're being overlooked. And it takes that interruption for the early church to realize they've been so inwardly focused that they're actually dropping the ball on some things. So they appoint people for those tasks, and the number of believers just explodes. But they're still in Jerusalem. And it's the interruption of one of their own being martyred that shakes them up and makes them scatter to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth where they can proclaim the message of Jesus just as he said they would. So in Samaria, we're told that the crowds hear Philip and they see the signs he performs and they pay close attention to what he says. And this is in pretty sharp contrast to what the Jewish authorities did with Stephen, remember? Because with Stephen, they're not hearing him, they're not seeing him, they're covering their ears and they're shouting at the top of their lungs. Their ears and hearts are uncircumcised just like those early Israelites. And they create chaos and panic. They cause the early Christians to scatter. But not so with the Samaritans. Turning our expectations upside down, Luke shows us that it's the Samaritans, rather than the Jewish authorities, it's the Samaritans whose ears and hearts are circumcised, who hear and see and believe the message of Jesus. And rather than bringing chaos and panic, there is great joy in the city. My friends, 
there are echoes of God's word all around us. We see God's spirit poured out on all, and our sons and daughters are prophesying. God's word indeed continues to go out to the ends of the earth. And just like we learn in Luke and Acts, God's community is all about reversing expectations. It's never what we expect it to be. It's so tempting to identify with those apostles, with the early ministers, those who hear and see and believe and proclaim, and sometimes that's who we are. And it's tempting to tell ourselves that we don't have any Samaritans where we live. We don't, we don't have like that kind of a, a setup, but we don't have to actually look very far to find people on the margins. And if we take an honest look at ourselves, sometimes we might find that we are closer to the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment, the religious authority. And so today, my friends, the question for us is, which shoe fits us in this story? Do we find a snug fit with Stephen, who boldly proclaims the truth despite the consequences? Or are we closer to the religious authorities, a little bit jealous of the power or popularity of others, maybe so jealous that we try to silence them? Do we find ourselves in Philip's shoes, traveling outside of the safety of our comfort zone to reach and serve those on the margins? Or are we waving the banner of Saul, so zealous for our causes or for our theology or our understanding of scripture and the church and what God does and doesn't say and what's allowed and who's in and who's out, that we're attacking anyone who threatens our way of doing and believing? Wherever you find yourself today, know that you are loved. Know that you are forgiven. Know that Jesus died for you just as he died for Stephen and Peter and Saul, and the whole Sanhedrin. And he died for your neighbor, and that annoying person at work, and the tailgater who's driving you crazy, and every person in your family, and every immigrant, and every person near and far who you will never meet. Jesus died for all of those people, every person who has ever lived and ever will live. So that puts us all on level ground all of us needing and receiving the forgiveness and redemption offered by God through Jesus. And whether you are cut to the heart for the ways in which you have judged others or brought to your knees for the ways in which you've participated in division and disunity, know that God's grace is for all of us. Whether you are ashamed of not being brave enough or bold enough or fill in the blank enough, know that God's grace is for all of us. God's forgiveness knows no end. God's love is everlasting. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash Jen Hale Christie. 
And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at Jen Hale Christie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.